You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our time here together, turning for guidance to the Christian mystic St. John of the Cross. How he tries to help us to uh, discern and to cooperate with uh, the dark night through which we pass into perfect union with God insofar as possible on this earth through love. And we began with the Ascendant of Carmel, uh, Book 2, Chapter 13, where he gives some guidelines on how to discern the presence of the dark night as it begins to appear in meditation and prayer. This um, sense of powerlessness to be consoled or nurtured by the presence of God as a way that God weans us off our dependency on these grace but finite ways of experiencing and responding to God, that God might lead us into the beginnings of this um, deeper sense of an infinite union with the infinite mystery of God, beyond thought, beyond words, so on. And then we saw how this night has an active aspect and a passive aspect. It's passive that it happens to us, that it's an act of God interiorly at work in the depths of ourself. But then it's active are the ways we freely choose to cooperate with it, that we assent to it, and um, in a way of staying open to and trusting in God in this transformative process uh, beyond our own understanding, beyond our own abilities. Then we turned in the previous session then to in the Ascent of Mount Carmel, Book One, where he takes this active night, that is this active cooperation, and extends it throughout the day as an attitude toward the gratification that comes to us through the senses. And um, since the senses are finite, and the gratification that comes to us through the senses is finite, the gratification that comes to us in the through the senses is infinitely less than the gratification we long for to be infinitely gratified in the depths of God. And therefore, these, these gratifications, they rise and fall, they're part of life. But we don't land there, we don't stay there, we don't cling to those, but rather look through those things and beyond those things as a way to keep our heart freed up to move ever closer to this infinite union with the infinite as a kind of a foreshadowing of our eternal destiny and passing through the veil of death, but beginning now in us, still on this earth, in this mysterious, subtle, uh, transformative process that's achieved through the night. And so now we turn um, in reflecting on the, on the dark night as it occurs in the senses and the appetites, as it occurs in the intellect, uh, through faith. And um, this is the Ascent of Mark Comrade Book 2 on the active night of faith and actively cooperating with this passive event of how we're being transformed. And he begins with the first stanza, the same stanza that he began 
uh, the, uh, book one with the uh, purification of the appetites, he now presents it as the purification of the intellect through faith. The stanza reads, In darkness and secure, by the secret ladder disguised, all the sheer grace, in darkness and concealment, my house being now all stilled. And then he says in Article 1, Chapter 1, The secret ladder represents faith, because all the rungs or articles of faith are secret to and hidden from both the senses and the intellect. Accordingly, the soul lived in darkness without the light of the senses and the intellect, and went out beyond every natural and rational boundary to climb the divine ladder of faith that leads up to and penetrates the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.10. So I'd like to begin there, trying to experientially get into what he's trying to help us understand uh, as it pertains to God, to the awakening of mystical union. Then I want to give some practical examples of how the same dynamic is at work in the interior dimensions of our love for each other. So first then, the latter. This, this imagery helps me to see it. Imagine as in a kind of waking dream uh, that you're out all alone um, uh, in a vast countryside. There's a full moon out. And uh, in the middle of this big expanse of grass, this big, huge field, there's a ladder. And the ladder that touches, is grounded on the earth, but it ascends up to the air, higher, higher, up to the clouds, up. It ascends up into the deep things of God. And you approach the ladder. And the rungs of the ladder are the articles of faith given to us in the creed. And so you put your foot, starting with the creed, see, I believe in God. So you put your foot on the ladder. I believe in God. And so you put your foot on your understanding of who God is, is revealed to us through Scripture, revealed to us through Christ, revealed to us through the Church, revealed to us our own experience. We have a certain internalized understanding of God. And then, I believe in God, see the Father, for the Father, Father, Mother, I believe God is origin of all things. So God is, uh, Jesus is a loving Father, Abba Father, God lovingly uh, creating uh, all things. Um, let there be light, let there be stones and trees and stars. And God, this perpetual self-giving act of God being poured out as the world and nature and of, of, of all things. And Almighty, then we understand what does that mean? What is this? God is Almighty, that there's no limit to the power of God, because it's infinite. And in Jesus, who is Jesus? Jesus says in the Gospels, who do you say that I am? And so we've internalized our understanding of Jesus and who Jesus is and who Jesus revealed himself to be as we understand it in our growing understanding within the faith, and so on, so on. And likewise, each of the rung, then, each of the teachings of Christ, the Beatitudes, the teachings, the parables, teachings, 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 climbing up to the rungs, ladder. Then when you're way, way, way up there above the clouds, it suddenly dawns on you that you don't know what these things mean. You don't know what they mean. 
the faith comes through hearing, you know they exist, through the power of faith, you know they exist. But what they are, what these things, what these words allude to, the mystery that the, the God as God is, as God, we, we don't know what it means. So then he, he, he clarifies what he means by this. This is chapter 3 of this. If a man born blind, a man or woman, or a person born blind, were told about the nature of the, co of the color yellow, he would understand absolutely nothing, no matter how much instruction he received. Since he never saw these colors, nor their like, he would not have the means to form a judgment about them. Only their names would be grasped, since the names are perceptible through hearing, but neither the form or image, because these colors are never seen by him. Article 3. Such is faith to the soul. It informs us of matters we have never seen or known, either in themselves or in their likenesses. In fact, nothing like them exists. The light of natural knowledge does not show us the object of faith, since the object is unproportionate to any of the senses, because the object is infinite, but the senses are finite. Yet we come to know it through hearing, by believing what faith teaches us, blinding our natural light and bringing it into submission. St. Paul says, faith comes through hearing, Romans 10, 17. This amounts to saying that faith is not a knowledge derived from the senses, but an ascent of the soul to what enters through hearing, which is infinitely beyond the senses. Faith, moreover, Article 4, far exceeds what these examples teach us. Not only does it fail to produce knowledge and science, but as we said, it deprives and blinds a person of any other knowledge or science by which he may judge it. Other knowledge is acquired by the light of the intellect, but not the knowledge that faith gives. Faith nullifies the light of the intellect, and if this light is not darkened, the knowledge of faith is lost. Accordingly, Isaiah says, if you do not believe, you will not understand the key term in St. Augustine. So let's, let's, let's look at this. This is that, um, I want to go back for a minute to the Ascent of Mount Carmel, Book One. And this is, um, turn to it. Remember in the Ascent of Mount Carmel, Book One, he, he talks about the, the elegance of this world compared to the elegance that is God, you know, is crude and ugly and so on, and the beauty of this world and so forth, compared to the infinite. And so he says an article in um, a chapter four, book one, all the world's wisdom and human ability contrasted with the infinite wisdom of God is pure and utter ignorance, as St. Paul writes to Corinthians. The wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight, 1 Corinthians 3.19. Anyone, therefore, who values his knowledge and ability as a means of reaching union with the wisdom of God is highly ignorant in God's sight. It will be left behind, far away from this wisdom. I love this. Ignorance does not grasp, but wisdom is. And in God's sight, those who think they have some wisdom are very ignorant. 
For the apostle says of them in writing in Romans, taking unto themselves wise men, they become fools, Romans 1.22. Only those who set aside their own knowledge and walk in God's service like unlearned children receive wisdom from God. I'd like to reflect on this. Yes, you know, it is true. The faith comes through hearing. And when we, I, we hear that, um, that God is love, and we take that in, and by way of analogy, we, we know something of what that means because we know what love is in us. But to say that God is love is infinitely more than what we know God is in us through analogies of how we love each other. Because God is infinite love. Octus plurissimus, the overflowing fullness of love itself. Again, you, you, you can't get the ocean into a thimble, but you can drop the thimble into the ocean, and we are that thimble. And so the boundaryless expanse of God's love um, uh, uh, is, is infinitely beyond. See? But we are able to comp- we, we know it's We know that God is love, because of faith through hearing and we assent to it. Like the person born blind who has no substantive knowledge of what the color yellow is, we have no substantive knowledge of what the infinite love of God is. And therefore, by faith that God is love, we're beyond ourselves. See, that, that faith then, is not the knowledge that comes through faith. It, isn't, it doesn't come through the intellect. It doesn't mean like St. Augustine says, faith-seeking understanding, that we can keep deepening and exploring it. But in, but in essence, the essence of the explorations keep opening out upon. And therefore, through a faith is a kind of paradoxical knowledge of, of a knowledge that passes beyond the frontiers of what the intellect can comprehend. But although it is beyond what the intellect can comprehend, through the gift of faith we know it's true in some obscure, intimate manner. And so God is present, so God is trinity, so God is eternal, so God is mercy, so too with the things of God. And therefore there's a, there's a certain uh, comfort level, as well there should be, in how we've internalized our understanding of God through the scriptures and through liturgy and through reflection and through prayer and through reading spiritual books. All this is real, it's important. But he's now saying that God is inviting us out beyond this, this uh, graced and real knowledge of God uh, as in a mere darkly or veiled in these mediations into an unmediated infinite knowledge and which requires of us then that we um, not depend on or identify with what we're capable of understanding, but rather identify with what we're incapable of understanding but which is drawing us to itself unexplainably in ways we don't understand. I'd like to share an image of this, because this is obscure, this is subtle, he's saying here. I'd like to say again, <clears throat> there is a sense in which he's referring to this at the summit of this dark night, uh, opening out upon mystical union and mystical knowledge of God, this deeper way to understand what it means to understand. And I'd like to try to hopefully make it a little more accessible intuitively so we, we can relate uh, to what he's trying to help us with here. Some images. Here I am sitting here and I have my understanding through my faith and my past and my tr- faith tradition, whatever, I, there's that. 
But see, but can I learn in my my understandings of God? Can I learn in prayer in life? Can I learn to join God in God's understanding of me, of who I am, hidden with Christ and God before the origins of the universe? And can I join God in understanding who God understands me to be? It's called to this infinite union with the infinity of himself, the infinity of herself. It's the very foundations of my identity, my destiny in love. And I want to go deeper too. Can I join God helping me to understand God's way of understanding God. That God uh, creates me as the beloved. God creates me as the beloved. And creates me as the beloved, John of the Cross says, as his infinite love that creates you as the one that God can completely give himself to, give herself to, whole and complete in a self-donating, self-emptying through love poured out and given to you whole and complete as your very life and your nothingness without God. That's, that's God created you to have someone to be, to be given to in this love. And could you, in being touched by this love, that you are unto God, God's beloved, could you then, in being touched to this love, realize that God desires you to desire God. God desires you to see that God is your beloved. So that in seeing how you are God's beloved, God giving to you as, as the beloved, that you then would give yourself in love to the love that gives itself to you in this reciprocity of this boundaryless love. Then we pass through the veil of death through all eternity and glory. This is our destiny. But now John of the Cross is saying, in subtle, 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 intimate ways, there are already the stirrings that it might begin, that not to wait until we're dead, to begin this, this consummation of this um, divinity uh, of ourselves as our ultimate destiny in our nothingness without God. And this is kind of the poetics of, and this is happening very subtly in our heart, in our heart like subtle stirrings like this. And that we, he's helping us to be sensitive and to honor and be attentive to them. By the way, it's the attentiveness of what we spoke of in meditation and prayer. Remember, that's how we began. That you're sitting there in your reflective prayer. And uh, God starts weaning you off your ability to be nurtured by the presence of God in reflective prayer. And in that lack of nurturance, in that lack of nurturance, if you don't give up and walk away, and you sit there like an unlearned child, open-handed and surrendered over to, to God in your helplessness to experience or to grasp or understand God, in that kind of quietness, inner quietness, there begins to grow in you a general loving awareness. So subtle, 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 so extremely delicate as the gate of heaven. And so this faith, then, is a faith intimately realized in prayer that is now we seek to actively cultivate it and habituate it into an habituated underlying 
a way of our deepest understanding throughout the day, like a transformation of this understanding into this divinized understanding, in this poverty and in this simplicity, like the interiority of it. That uh, God's uh, infinitely in love with you, and you realize that the grace of God, you're falling in love with God. And these are the guidelines to consummate the union. It's destiny. I'd like to hopefully clarify this by reflecting a little bit on how this summit of this love, the, 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 the transformative energies like rain falling down and soaking into the lowest of places, these same energies can be seen in the way that we love and love each other. And I'd like to, refle- I'd like to reflect on this. It's kind of a, a sacrament of this love. Again, imagine then that you, you meet someone. And when you first meet them, you, you see them and you hear their voice and you, you see them just like everyone around you sees them. And as you start talking and get to know each other, you, you begin to go deeper in understanding the person by the way they share themselves with you and reflect with you and how their mind works and the things they see. So there's a kind of a deepening interior knowledge of the person. In that deepening process, you realize you're starting to fall in love with the person. And as you fall in love, there's the knowledge born of love. And I w- I'd put it poetically this way. There's your love deepens, that in your love, you're able to, in some sense, see into the depths of their soul, past appearances, past what you can explain, into the preciousness of their soul essence as the beloved. That through love, through the eyes of love, you can peer down into the depths and see the infinitely lovable soul essence of, of who they are. But notice, though, in this seeing, you don't see the love that empowers you to see it. That as you see the person, you, you see how the deepening awareness of your oneness with the person reverberates in your touch and in your attentiveness and in your sharing with each other. But, but the love itself, but the love itself remains unseen that empowers you to see this. Furthermore, you don't really see the innermost essence of the person. Because in the innermost depth, depths of God, the person belongs completely to God and is of God and uh, has a value that cannot be calculated. And, and you, 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 you sense the intimations of the divinity or the, the mystery of their presence. And in sensing this, you realize that your present understanding of who they are and your love, that love always kind of calls you to go beyond that, that it's, you're, you're grateful for it, how sensitized you are to the subtleties of their movements of their being. But then you see from the vantage point of that love a yet deeper oneness with the mystery of who they are. And you're a perpetual exodus. You're being called by love into this ever deeper oneness like this. 
that remains less and less and less explainable to anybody. If someone would, would try to explain this to someone, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know where to start because you, you, because you don't understand it yourself, I meaning you don't comprehend it yourself. But through the knowledge born of love, it's a transconceptual knowledge born of love. And imagine too then the beloved then in seeing that they're seen, that in your love for them, you reveal them to themselves as infinitely, as unexplainably precious and lovable, which is an echo of how God sees them as unexplainably, ineffably lovable, created by God in the image and likeness of God. And they, in being so seen and so revealed to themselves, they then return the favor by then seeing you past the appearances, past their thoughts, past their things, seen ever deeper in the deepening of love, where they see the, the, the depths of you unexplainably. And the depths of you is an is abyss-like. That is, the, the deeper it goes, uh, it's an ascent and opens out upon the bottomless abyss of God, welling up and giving itself as the intimate immediacy and the miracle and the preciousness of, of you as the beloved's beloved, as they to you. And you reveal yourselves to each other in this reciprocity of love. And uh, uh, life once graced and once tasted, you realize how impoverished life is without this overflowing fullness of love in which all the rhythms of life then find their meaning in fidelity to that and the sharing of that. Likewise, we said earlier, this also holds true uh, where you can, and the same thing can occur in, in art, in, in, um, the, in the beautiful, and surrendering to the beautiful can be given in poetry, roka, you must ask yourself in the stillest hour of your darkest night, must I write poetry? And if the answer is a clear and simple yes, you must build your whole life and fidelity to that inner imperative. And the deeper you go into the, into the, the beauty of the poetry, the more unexplainable what's happening to you becomes as the beauty of poetry is transforming you into itself, opening out upon as being ultimately divine. So the way of the artist, the way of the poet, the one who serves the poor, the one who's called a solitude, the solitary wanderer, the one who's called a service to a community, that all these are potential modalities of being enraptured by this knowledge beyond concepts, this living heart knowledge born of love. And then in the context of this, John the Cross is saying then, there is the gift then of how God's present in all these ways, the sacraments of this love, that you're being drawn in the prayer, that you're falling in love with God. Not as you know God as mediated to you through faith, through your insights and consolations and reassurances, all that's holy and real, but you're being weaned off a dependency on that toward this infinite union, and he's helping us to um, uh, f f 
pass through that, which is like a dark night unto us. It's dark because we're blinded by, the, by its infinite light, and blinded by its infinite light because in its light we also see how impoverished our finite ways of experiencing God are. And in this paradoxical knowledge, transconceptual knowing beyond what can be comprehended, that he's, he's leading us interiorly along this path. You can see how subtle these teachings are, I think, because uh, how foolish it would be if I would say, I'm trying to be so clear that I'm going to explain it. But if any, insofar as I could explain it, it would be infinitely less of what the teachings are about. That the teachings and the rhythm and cadences of the mystic's voice they, 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 they access our heart with intimate intimations of the unexplainable, which in some way we recognize. And we recognize it as what's touched us and is drawing us to itself. And in this way, that John of the Cross guides us like this. I was so grateful to be with Thomas Merton at the monastery because I, I saw him as a, you know, as a living embodiment of these mystical traditions, these lineages. And um, but uh, and it was Merton who introduced me to John of the Cross. I'd go out in the woods and sit at the under at a tree and I would read John I would read these things I'm reading to you. And it was the same voice. See, it's, it's this this ancient voice of the lineage uh, down through the ages from awakened heart to awakened heart. And um, and so the deathless presence of John of the Cross uh, can help us in our heartfelt sincerity of living in the poetic richness of this so intimately realized. I just share a, a passage, a couple passages here that I think are particularly profound and lovely here um, on this. This is uh, chapter 4, article 5. <clears throat> so let's say you're on this road, that is, let's say you're being carried along unexplainably by the unexplainable, taking you to itself. Uh, a, a knowledge utterly transcending all that you can comprehend. As regard to this road to union, entering on the road means leaving one's own road, or better, moving on to the goal, and turning from one's own mode implies entry into what has no mode, that is God. So there are modes of being, uh, but uh, God has no mode. God is the inf God is infinite reality. That is the infinite reality of all modes of being. But God, as God, is utterly beyond all these specific modes. A person who reaches this state, this modeless mode, no longer has any modes or methods. Still less is he or can or nor can he be attached to them. I'm referring to modes of understanding, taste, and feeling. Within himself, though, he possesses all methods, like one who, though having nothing, it possesses all things. 2 Corinthians 6.10 By being courageous enough to pass beyond the interior and exterior limits of his nature, he enters within supernatural bounds, bounds that have no mode, yet in substance possess all modes. To reach the supernatural bounds, a person must depart from his natural bounds and leave so far off in respect to his interior and exterior limits 
in order to mount from the low state to the highest. And uh, you know, my sense of this, this is so personal, how each of us might experience this, is insofar as we're touched by the beauty of it. The very fact we're touched by the beauty of it bears witness that it's already happening to us. In, in the midst of our wayward ways, in the midst of the unresolved matters of our mind and heart, in, uh, in the childlike sincerity, I realize there is unfolding within me uh, intimations of this uh, infinite love taking me to itself unexplainably in the intimate unfoldings of my body, my mind, my emotions, my life, and birth and death and joy and sorrow is all becoming infused with the, the kind of the divinity that rises and falls in the cadences of these modes, transcending all modes. Back in the good old days when I was holy, it all seemed so clear, the chapter and verse clarity, but now for quite some time now, I become perplexed, like delightfully perplexed in this enigmatic darkness and uh, the ungraspability of this deep divine understanding being conveyed to me in this night. Article 6, chapter 6. Passing beyond all that is naturally and spiritually intelligible or comprehensible. When I read this at the monastery, this so got to me right here. Passing beyond all that is naturally and spiritually intelligible or comprehensible, a person ought to desire with all his might to attain what in this life is unknowable and unimaginable. And parting company with all he can or does taste and feel, temporally and spiritually, he must ardently long to acquire what surpasses all taste and feeling. To be empty and free for this achievement of this, you should by no means seize upon what he receives spiritually or sensitively, but consider it of little import. The higher rank and esteem a man gives to all his knowledge, experience, and imagining, whether spiritual or not, the more he subtracts from the supreme good and the more he delays in his journey toward him and the less he esteems of what he possesses relative to the supreme good, however estimable it may be, the more he values and prizes God, and consequently, the closer he comes to God. In this way, in obscurity, a man swiftly approaches union by means of faith, which is also dark. And in this way, faith gives him wondrous light. Obviously, if a person should desire to see, he would be in darkness as regards to God, more quickly than if he opened his eyes to, to the blinding light of the sun. I'd like then to end with two images, one I gave in an earlier session. I think on Merton, I can't remember. What's he saying here? Um, in, in, in the presence of Christ. What if we could all close our eyes right now? With our eyes closed, we'd be interiorly awakened so that when we opened our eyes, we would see through our own awakened eyes what Jesus saw and all that he saw. What would we see? We'd see God, because Jesus saw God in all that he saw. And what's so amazing about it, when you reflect on it, it didn't make any difference whether 
uh, Jesus saw his own mother or a prostitute. It didn't make any difference whether he saw the joy of those gathered at a wedding or the sorrow of those gathered at the burial of a loved one. It didn't make any difference whether he saw a person of great wealth and power or a widow dropping her last coin in the box. It didn't matter whether he saw his disciples or his executioners. It didn't matter whether he saw a bird or a flower or a tree. Jesus saw God in all that he saw. And Jesus said, you have eyes to see, but you do not see. And our prayer then is, Lord, that I might see. See, how might I see in all that I see what you saw in all that you saw, that I might see God being poured out and utterly given away as the intimate immediacy of the gift and the miracle of my very life and my nothingness without God, the very miracle of the whole world and its nothingness without you is your manifested presence. And I think this is what John of the Cross is he's trying to invite us to kind of be attentive to this and be patient and open. Lastly, an image, some silly image maybe came to me, so I'll share it some time ago. Imagine you're sitting in prayer, devotional sincerity. And um, as you're sitting there uh, in prayer, um, you, you begin to um, uh, be interiorly awakened to the presence of God radically deeper or richer or beyond anything you've ever experienced in your life and amazed by it amazed by it. You hear God silently say within you, but that's not the point. You sit a little bit longer, and uh, the awareness gets deeper, and um, you start to levitate off the floor. And levitating off the floor, you hear God silently say to you in the midst of your amazement, but that's not the point, really. It gets a little bit deeper, and the room is filled with celestial light, and there are angels and saints surrounding you. And in the, in the, in the amazement of the celestial space, you hear God say within you, but that's not the point. Because the point is not really anything attained or unattained. It isn't anything gained or lost. The point is the infinity of myself being utterly poured out and utterly given to you whole and complete as the gift and miracle of who you are as my beloved, that you might in being so awakened in the poverty of your spirit, in the midst of your wayward ways, with childlike sincerity, you might see me as your beloved, and we would give ourselves to each other unexplainably, so that your destiny in me and my will for you might be fulfilled. And so I think then um, that the, the beauty of these teachings is the, the sense of which um, the, the, there's, there's intonations and intimations of the intimacy of what cannot be explained that stirs within our heart so that we might be encouraged and uh, surrender ourselves over to it. And knowing that what really matters you see, is not, will I ever get there, like some far off thing, 
Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But how can I realize that the fullness of what I'm saying is giving itself to me in the context of who I am right now in this situation? See, how could I ask God to help me to see the divinity that's sustaining me unexplainably, pouring itself out as this love nature of all things, so that by seeing it, I might give myself to that, and give myself to that, I might share it with others. By this shall know my, my disciples that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And um, so we'll end there. And then with a sit, with a meditation, I invite you to sit straight, fold your hands, bow, repeat after me, be still and know I am God, be still and know I am. Be still and know, be still, be.
bajo. Oh, said the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Mary, Mother of Contemplatives, pray for us. St. Teresa of Avila, pray for us. St. John of the Cross, pray for us. Blessings to the next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.